Well, if you would open your Bible to Esther 4 this morning as we continue our journey through, through this book. And to pick up, let's, as we pick up in this story, let's look back just one verse to Esther chapter 3, verse 15, as we pick up in, in the story. So Esther 3, verse 15 says, the couriers went out hurriedly by orders of the king, and the decree was issued in Susa, the citadel. And the king and Haman sat down to drink, but the city was thrown into confusion. So let's just think back, right? As we pick up in Esther 4, what went down last week in Esther 2 and 3? Right? The, the city is thrown into confusion when this man Haman takes a personal vendetta against this man Mordecai, but this personal vendetta turns global, right? We learned that it was really an ancient animosity, and now Haman convinces the king, King Ahasuerus, to decree that all of the Jews be destroyed, be annihilated. So the city of Susa is now in confusion, and that's where we pick up here in chapter 4. Let's read. Chapter 4, verse 1. So when Mordecai learned all that had been done, Mordecai tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes and went out into the midst of the city and he cried out with a loud and bitter cry. How could Mordecai not cry out with this loud and bitter cry? Like, we are ruined by the edict, by the law of the king. And... How can Mordecai, again, remember, all of this started to happen because he refused to what? Bow down to Haman, to the evil man, which is kind of reminiscent of Romans 5, isn't it? How death comes to a whole nation through Mordecai, right? So, in a sense, death came to all of us through the sin of one man, Adam. So, verse 2, let's, uh, let's pick up with the narrative. He, Mordecai, went up to the entrance of the king's gate, for no one was allowed to enter the king's gate clothed in sackcloth. And in every province, wherever the king's command and his decree reached, there was great mourning among the Jews with fasting and weeping and lamenting, and many of them lay in sackcloth and ashes." So picture this, Mordecai, he's now clothed in sackcloth and ashes, and he's sitting at the entrance of the king's gate, right? So he's, he's sitting at the king's gate. We'll pick up with Mordecai in a moment. But not only Mordecai is sitting in sackcloth and in ashes in the despair of the moment, but what does the text say? It says everyone in all of the provinces, all 127 provinces where this decree went out, all of the Jews are in a similar state, just grieved at what has happened. In other words, they're lamenting, right? If you're here with us this summer, that psalm that Julie just read, Psalm 77, uh, will probably ring a bell as we are making our way through some of the songs of Scripture. 
And Psalm 77 captures probably a good bit of what the nation of Israel, what the Jews were feeling in this moment of despair. Let me just read a couple verses from Psalm 77 as, as these people fast and weep and lament. I cry aloud to God, aloud to God, and he will hear me. In the night of my trouble, I seek the Lord. In the night, my hand is stretched out without wearying. My soul refuses to be comforted. Verse 6, I said, let me remember my song in the night. Let me meditate in my heart. And then my spirit made a diligent search. Will the Lord spurn forever? And never again be favorable? Has his steadfast love forever ceased? Are his promises at an end for all time? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he in anger shut up his compassion? You feel the desperation? we starting to feel what the Israelites are thinking and feeling as this edict goes out that they are going to be destroyed. And when they have nowhere else to go, what does it say? Where do they turn? They turn to fasting of an entire nation. An entire people group turns to fasting and weeping. You know, we could, uh, we could be here. Elizabeth and I were chatting right before church. We'd be here until the end of the Steeler game this afternoon if we started to say how much we feel is wrong with our world today, wouldn't we? And here the Jews turn to fasting and weeping together. What ought we to do, church? What ought we to do as we figure out what to do with this seeming despair we have to fast and to pray? Right, let's pick up in verse 4. The news reaches Queen Esther. When Esther's young women and her eunuchs came and told her, the queen was deeply distressed. She sent garments to clothe Mordecai so that he might take off his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. Mordecai, I, I know this is bad, but if you're up there at the king's gate, remember, no one can go into the king's gate with sackcloth. So it's just going to look really bad if you're sitting right there as everyone's going through in sackcloth and ashes. It, it, it doesn't look good. People are going to start talking. It's probably going to be dangerous for you to be there like that. You know, why don't you put on these clothes instead? Kind of just ignore the situation. Or why don't you put these on and act like a reasonable person? Person, and then we can have a rational conversation about what's going on. But Mordecai says, in essence, by rejecting those clothes, what we read in the psalm, no, Esther, my, my soul refuses to be comforted. My soul refuses to be comforted. So in verse 5, it continues. Then Esther called for Hathach, one of the king's eunuchs, who had been appointed to attend her, and ordered him to go to Mordecai to learn what this was and why it was. So here we have a, a new character in the story. We have Hathach, 
right? Now, he's critically important because the rest of what we're about to read, it all happens to him. He's now the, um, the communicator, the conduit through which Mordecai, who's sitting in sackcloth and ashes outside the king's gate, and Esther inside the palace, all happens through this happening. And he has two orders there at the end of verse 5. What are his orders? What does she send him to do? To learn what and why. She kind of already knows what's going on, right? But she's, um, um, some of us do this, right? You, you hear something on the news and then you pick up the phone. Like, for example, I just learned this morning that Interstate 70, what is it, between Jessup and Laboratory is, is shut down, right? It's like, all right, but, but really, what's going on? So someone, so, yeah, were you there? Tell me. Yeah, well, fill me in on the details, right? The, I remember at one point looking at Washington County Facebook pages. Don't. <laughs> there's like the, the news and information, and then there's like the Washington County, what's going on. And if you want to get really creative, there's the Washington town, County, what's really going on. And, and I, kid, I kid you not, I remember seeing one day the Washington County, what's really, really going on Facebook page. Ironically, the first one has the most, uh, <laughs> the most action, but that's what's going on here. Esther is like, Mordecai, okay, I, I kind of know what's happening here, but really, and how did it come about? Give me, give me the lowdown. What's, what's the scoop? And so in verse 6, we get it. Let's read. Hathach went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate, and Mordecai told him all that had happened to him and the exact sum of money that Haman had promised to pay into the king's treasuries for the destruction of the Jews. He's pretty detail-oriented, isn't he? The exact sum of money, the 10,000 talents that Haman has committed to making sure this is carried out. He's saying, here's what happened. Haman wanted everyone to bow down to him. I wouldn't bow down to him. He hates me. He wants to kill me. But he said, oh, killing Mordecai is not enough. Let's kill them all. She's, he, Mordecai's detailing this for Queen Esther. Esther, we're doomed. Don't you see? All of us, we're going to be killed. And if you don't believe it from me, read it yourself. Verse 8. And Mordecai also gave him, gave Hathach, a copy of the written decree issued in Susa for their destruction that he might show it to Esther. Kind of gives a new potent meaning to our phrase, our colloquialism, like read it and weep. Literally, Esther, this is my account, but here's the real deal. Read it for yourself. This is the law of the land. Let's recenter. What was this edict? If we look back in chapter 3, verse 13, just to get our mind around what's going on. Chapter 3, 13. This is, this is what the edict says. Letters were sent out by couriers to all the king's provinces with instruction to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all Jews young and old, women and children, in one day. And to plunder their goods. Pretty desperate, isn't it? 
I was trying to think about how on earth can we relate to such a, a sense of despair. And as I was thinking about that this week, um, the words of Winston Churchill came to mind right, in, in World War II. So let me just read some of Churchill's words to us to help us get our arms around, get our minds around what's really happening in Mordecai's mind and the mind of the Jews who are laying, weeping, lamenting. Churchill's words. The battle of Britain is about to begin. Upon this battle depends the survival of Christian civilization. Upon it depends our own British life and the long continuity of our institutions and our empire. The whole fury and might of the enemy must very soon be turned on us. Hitler knows that he will have to break us in this island or lose the war. If we fail, then the whole world, including the United States, including all that we have known and cared for, will sink into the abyss of a new dark age, made more sinister and perhaps more protracted by the lights of perverted science. No survival for the British Empire. No survival for all that the British Empire has stood for. There will be no survival. The difference, though, that Britain could fight back in World War II. And here, the Jews can't. According to Ahasuerus's edict, they will be destroyed, they will be annihilated, they will be wiped off the face of the planet. Hopeless, desperate, and they are on the brink of annihilation. Look back to the text in verse 8, the second half. It says that he might show it, the decree, to Esther and explain it to her and command her to go to the king to beg his favor and plead with him on behalf of her people. In no uncertain terms, Esther, this is what's happening and it is going to happen. And so what is the language Mordecai commands Esther? He commands her to plead and to beg that they will be saved. You must do this. Go plead and beg. So if we're sitting here in Mordecai's shoes, what do we expect? What do you expect the queen to do? Well, um, you know, if we Think back to, to last week, chapter 2, verse 20, talks about how Esther obeyed all that Mordecai had commanded. It says, for Esther obeyed, just as, obeyed Mordecai just as when she was brought up by him. She's been, uh, she's been a great child, if you will, to Mordecai. She obeyed his word as she was brought up by him. And even in the whole Miss, Miss Persia beauty pageant, if you will, she obeyed him. And so Mordecai's thinking, okay, she gets it. What is she going to do now? She's going to finally go and plead with the king. And that's where we pick up in verse 9. So Havoc went and told Esther what Mordecai had said. 
And then Esther spoke to Hathach and commanded him to go to Mordecai and say, All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law to be put to death, except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter, so that he may live. But as for me, I have not been called to come in to the king these 30 days. Let's pause there. She's thinking rationally. You can't blame her, can you? She's thinking rationally. Mordecai, don't you know? Everyone knows what the law is. You don't mess with the king unless he asks for you. Oh, and um, by the way, not only am I putting my life on the line by going in, but we're kind of having a dry spell in our relationship. He hasn't even asked to see me for 30 days. I'm not as powerful as you think I am, Mordecai. I don't have as much sway as you think I have. Hey, Mordecai, um, do you remember Queen Vashti? Do you know what happened whenever she broke the rules? She gone. What do you want me to do? I'm between a rock and a hard spot. I can't break the law. Oh, what Mordecai would have thought, right? What Mordecai would have thought in that moment. In that moment. But her excuses really aren't all that uncommon, are they? Moses, God, I can't even speak. Gideon. How do I really, 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 really know it's you? Don't you know how the world works, Mordecai? Don't you know how the world works? Can you feel the tension heightening and heightening and heightening? Just getting more and more terse, if you will. The rubber band's getting close to that breaking point as we stretch out the tension of the story. Oh yeah, and uh, Mordecai. Yeah, there's there's one more thing. Don't you remember it? You're the one. I'm speaking as Esther now. You're the one who who told me about it in the first place. I have one deep, dirt, uh, dark secret that no one else knows about. You told me to keep it a secret. Nobody knows I'm a Jew. No one knows. So if I just sit here and keep my mouth shut, no one's going to know what I should have done. Hmm. I'm comfortable. My belly's fed. I got no concerns in the world. I'm the queen. No one's going to know. Why would I give that up? Friends, here's... We've all been in a place like this, right? We're, we're in a situation where we haven't asked for this mess. Did Esther ask for any of this to happen to her? Did she ask for her people to be, to, to be sentenced to death? And did she ask to even be put in this, this position as queen? She is in this mess, goose egg, zero, because of her own doing, because of her own choices. She didn't ask for it. None of it was her own. And so in the same way, 
the messes in our lives often are not the exact consequences of my actions or of your actions. Cancers, family tragedies, the actions even of our loved ones. And yet, here we are, here Esther is standing in the rubble of this mess. Verse 12. And they told Mordecai what Esther had said. What a punch in the gut that must have felt like. Had one of those recently? What Esther had said. And then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther. Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Esther. You think you're safe up there in your ivory towers, but guess what? When evil starts running its course, the snowball keeps growing. It, it probably accurately picks that out. You, you have a false comfort. You have a false comfort in your opulence, with your money, your food, everything. It's a false comfort. And now we turn to what has been called the biggest example of faith in the entire book of Esther. And these, these words of Mordecai. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. That's about as close to a mention of God's name as we're going to get in this book. Right? We're, we're feeling the tension getting bigger and bigger. And Esther, you got to go. You got to plead with the king. But if you don't, God's going to take care of us. If you don't, relief is going to come. We as the reader are just like waiting for him. Like, bro, Mordecai, just say it. Just say, God is going to raise someone up. He's going to do something. Which leaves us to kind of dig into it a little bit more, right? Why can Mordecai claim boldly that relief and deliverance are going to rise from another place? Because God has said so. We can pick any one of dozens of passages. But we know because God has made it known to the Jewish nation that what? Who's going to come out of the Jews? Jesus. And uh, Genesis 12 is, is one of the first promises, right? And we talk about it all the time here, it feels like. But God has said, in you, Abraham, in other words, in you, Jews, Jewish nation, you, I will bless you so that you will be a blessing to all nations. And that culminates in the person of Jesus Christ. And so here Mordecai is saying, relief and deliverance will rise because God has promised and he has purposed. Two weeks ago, Zeb mentioned um, on how uh, Genesis chapter 3, right? The, the serpent 
uh, Genesis 3.15, right, it says, the, uh, when God is talking to the serpent or to Satan, it says, you, Satan, serpent, shall bruise his heel, but he, Christ, shall crush your head. You remember this? And so he's, as, as I was mentioning, um, Satan was on a mission to do everything he can to stop the serpent's head from being crushed. And time and time again, we see him working to try to eliminate the Jewish nation off the face of the planet so that that one, Jesus, would not ever be born. Because they knew, if I can wipe the Jews off the face of the planet, then this Jesus will never be born. And then, I'll. He knows. You get in the picture. But Mordecai knows that the promises of God will stand. And even though it is desperate and the despair is plenty, and it says this is, was the enemy in having a party? Who knows? This very well may have been the closest he ever came to wiping out all of the Jews on the planet and the biggest empire including the promised land. And yet somehow, and yet somehow Mordecai can claim that relief and deliverance are going to come amid the despair because God has said so. Remembering the purpose and the character of God causes Mordecai to say relief and deliverance will arise from another place. Catch this. Although Mordecai probably sees no other place. Right now, he can see from a worldly perspective one place from which that relief can come. That would be through Esther pleading with the king, right? But yet he can stand there and say, it will come. And the old song God will make a way comes to mind when there seems to be no way. Even though he couldn't see another way. And who knows whether you have not come to a kingdom for such a time as this. You know, the movies, these are like those, those only hope moments. You know, when you have the mentor talking to the young protege saying, don't you get it? They're getting that, that old pep talk. Um, I was going to mention a Star Wars movie, and then I just, I just can't even keep track of them. They're, they're putting out all these Star Wars things. I'm like, oh. the kids will say, Metro, did you see this Star Wars thing? I, I can't keep track. They're printing that like they print, like they print books. But um, when they say, you are our only hope, like the last Jedi. Right? You pick whatever hero movie you want but it's like you are our only hope if it's not you then we're we're done we're wiped off we'll cease to exist and that's how a lot of us might be reading this passage right we if we know the book of esther this is what we know for such a time as this but let's read it together again and who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Notice it's not a, a statement, is it? How does this sentence end? Question mark. It's 
rather a, a rhetorical question, but nonetheless, a question. What's Mordecai saying? What's he trying to communicate to Esther? Esther, I don't know if this is what God has purposed. See, Mordecai is not presuming to be God and saying this is how God must choose to act to carry out his purposes. Esther, you might actually die. You might actually die. But he kind of does a SWOT analysis of, of his whole world, doesn't he? He says, when I look at the world, I don't know where else help can come from. But when I look at you and the position that you have coincidentally been placed in, how you accidentally came to become the queen, I can't help but to think that maybe God put you here for that. Uh, a few moments of uh, things of application for us. One, Mordecai is looking at his world. He's looking at his resources. He's looking at his relationships, at his talents. He's looking at things and saying, Lord, have you put us here for this purpose? Y you see it? How he's looking at the things around him. He says, all right, Lord, this, this seems to be the way you're leading, so let's step forward. We should be doing the same, shouldn't we? With our time, our money, our relationships. You, you pick it, just looking at the world, looking at the people you bring into our lives, looking where you have placed me. How can I be effective for your kingdom? How can I be effective for your kingdom? And this is, a, believe it or not, despite the despair we often see today, it is really one of the most exciting times to be a Christian. Muslims are coming to faith in bigger numbers in the past few years than in all of human history. Past 40 years, more Muslims have come to faith than in the past 600. Right? That uh, Wycliffe Bible translators has said that maybe, just maybe, as if if the trend continues, the last person to translate the Bible into the last language on planet Earth has just been born. The excitement of the times, despite the despair, there's still an excitement. And when we look at our world, how we ought to think, and how the Lord could choose to use us in it. See, Mordecai, he knows God's purposes. He looks at the opportunities. Esther, come on now, like, step up. But he still does not presume that this is how God must act. That I know beyond the shadow of a doubt that, Esther, you're not going to die. Yeah, you see it? Again, God, I know your purpose is we're not going to die. I see the opportunity, so I'm going to encourage Esther in it. But I don't know for a fact we're just going to take that next step of obedience. That next step of obedience. So here in verse 14, and we, get, we have two of the most climactic themes of the whole book right here in this one verse. You see those top three lines. If you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. And then we see how this verse ends. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. We see here two deep theological truths, which 
a lot of folks might say don't seem to go together, but they do, placated on the same verse in Scripture. You see it? Up here on the first one, Mordecai is proclaiming the certainty of God's purposes and using the Jews for redemptive history. How, the, how they must, how they will be saved one way or the other. And yet, with the, such a time as this passage, still the admission that I, he very well could choose to use you, Esther, but I don't know for certain. I just know you will do it, God. I don't know how you're going to carry that out. You see that? They're in the same verse. I know you will do it, but I still don't really know how. So, Mordecai is encouraging Esther. Take that next step. Step by step. Day by day. Esther, it sure seems like your life circumstances have paved the way for that very next step. But remember, Esther, it's God's show. It's not your show. He is the hero, and you're not. He might choose to use you. He might not. Let's go down to verse... 15, the conclusion as to how this will all be carried out is still on the table. We don't know yet. Verse 15, then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, go, gather all the Jews to be found in Susa and hold a fast on my behalf and do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young women will also fast with you, as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. Mordecai then went away and did everything as Esther had ordered him. In the first sermon in the book of Esther, that was pretty clear. There are ways that we should not emulate Esther. Remember that? Three ways not to be like Esther. But here we see things start to shift. We see a glimmer of hope as her character starts to develop in a positive direction. We see things start to shift in how God uses sinful, messed up, selfish people to carry on what he has. People in a, between a rock and a hard place. Even people, you've seen this in your workplace. You've seen this among, among unbelieving friends. When they don't know where else to go, when they don't know what else to do, kind of as if uh, on a whim, they don't have anywhere or one to go to, what do they do? Even unbelievers. They just kind of pray one of those, God, I hope you're there, and if you are, prayers. We've all done it, haven't we? And here in the story, there is nowhere else to turn. No one else who can help. I don't know what to do. Even, even the queen herself doesn't have the power, and she doesn't even know what to do. 
And so where do they turn? Where do we turn? So Esther calls a fast. Esther and their people, they turn to God when they have nowhere else to go, and they call a corporate fast for three days. And that lament there in Psalm 77 kind of captures how they felt, I imagine. My soul refuses to be comforted. How they lamented, how they prayed. But how unifying those three days must have felt to be a Jew. How unifying as they lay there weeping and lamenting and praying one with another. I wonder what the, the other people thought, don't you? As they lay there weeping and, and praying, what the other nations, the other peoples thought of those, uh, those Jews. And I particularly wonder what they would have thought, those nations would have thought, as the story continu continues to unfold. Oh, what our world would be like, church, if we covenanted together, prayed together, fasted together, and pleaded together to our God. There is something unifying when we fast and when we pray together. Remember Churchill in Britain? Again, the difference was he could encourage people. He could rally Parliament. He could encourage the, the Air Force and the Navy and the, the Army. He could even rally the entire West and, and galvanize the Allied nations. As we have nothing to offer but blood, toil, tears, and sweat. Right? We'll hear it throughout history. But here the Jews had nowhere to go. One commentator wrote, the Jews wept and they wailed, knowing that their words could not pierce the palace walls of the king, but that they could penetrate the gates of heaven. And so now Esther has resolved to take that next step. After we have fasted, after we have prayed, she says, then I will go to the king, even though I know it is against the law, even though I may be killed, and if I perish, I perish. A missionary from about 100 years ago, C.T. Studd, um, Esther embodies what he once said, he is no fool to give up that which he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. If I perish, I perish. And here in these words, in Esther's posture, we see three very important things. First, Esther is sincere. You see it? She's now feeling the importance. She is sincere in her response. She is sincere in the next course of action that she is laying out. She is sincere. Two, Esther, the queen herself, expresses her 
unworthiness. I can't do this on my own power. I can't do this in and of myself. It's not in me, even though I'm the queen. There's probably no one else in the kingdom more worthy than I, but I am utterly unworthy to approach the throne. And third, three, we see Esther's expression of her conscious need. A complete and total submission to God, to the potential consequences of her action, and to her expressed need of prayer, and not only individual prayer, but communal prayer. Her conscious need. These three things, pretty important in any Christian's life, and taking that first step of faith, aren't they? A sincere confession and desire to God. Right, an expression of my unworthiness, my sin, and a need that we can never fulfill on our own. So Esther's resolve screams, screams loud words to us today, do they not? Only a short while ago, she was making up rationalized excuses, and here she is sincere, and here she is resolved. It's almost as if Mordecai's words to her remind her, help her see that God himself was in the details. Almost as if she finally saw that God cares about her life, about what's going on in her life. She steps up to the plate but she steps up to the plate in full submission. In full submission. And she asks for prayer. Perhaps God has put us here for this purpose. This very day. But it's God's show, remember. It's not hers, yours, Esther. He is the hero. We are not. If I perish, I perish. I will rest in the sovereign reign of the King of Kings. Even if I am killed, God, I'm not going to presume how you're going to figure all this out. Even if I am killed, even if, if I perish, I'm still going to take that very next step of faith. That very next step of obedience, foot by foot, step by step, day by day. And if I perish, I perish. Another commentator said, think of the soft, fair lips set to utter that grand surrender, total surrender to God himself and his purpose and how he will save the Jews, his covenant people, the Jewish nation, the most beautiful woman in all the land, the best of the best in the world's eyes, given up everything in submission. What you have is better, Lord. I will submit. But Esther's not the only one to have to grapple with her death. Take a quick look at chapter 2, verse 7. 
Esther 2.7, the end of it says, And when her father and her mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. Mordecai had to grasp with the death of essentially his adopted daughter, of his young cousin. And this wasn't a transactional relationship. We see just a few verses later in verse 11, when she was in that whole year, right, of their beautification and purification during the, the pageant, if you will. During that whole year, verse 11 tells us that Mordecai walked in front of the court to check on her every single day. This is a deep relationship. A how he how he loved her dearly. It is grand, the commentator goes on, when love exhorts. It is grand when love exhorts loved ones to a course which may bring death to them. And lifelong loneliness and quenched hopes to it. Give a number, another example of this. About 200 years ago, a man, a missionary to uh, or near India, by the name of Adoniram Judson, was due to be married, but he had to ask his his bride to be's ha father's hand um, for her hand in marriage. But in those days, you don't like call him up, or you can't even Skype if you live a few oceans away, right? <laughs> or Zoom. Um, so he writes a letter. Here's his letter to his future father-in-law. I have now to ask whether you can consent to part with your daughter early next spring to see her no more in this world. Whether you can consent to her departure to a heathen land and her subjection to the hardships and sufferings of a missionary life whether you can consent to her exposure to the dangers of the ocean, to the fatal influence of the southern climate of India, to every kind of want and distress, to degradation, insult, persecution, and perhaps a violent death. Can you consent to all this for the sake of him who left his heavenly home and died for her and for you, for the sake of perishing immortal souls, for the sake of Zion and the glory of God? Can you consent to all this in hope of soon meeting your daughter in the world of glory with a crown of righteousness, brightened by the acclamations of praise, which shall soon resound to her Savior from heathen saved through her means from eternal woe and despair. That's how he asked for her hand in marriage. <laughs> wow. And in a similar manner, Mordecai, knowing what is on the line, pleads with Esther to offer her life for something much greater, for someone much better. It's one thing to hold my own life loosely, isn't it? But it is a whole nother thing for us, church, to, to hold the lives of those that we love openly and to offer them to King Jesus. Brothers, 
our sisters, our parents, even our children. If I perish, I perish. God, absolute wholehearted alignment to you, to your kingdom, to your purposes, with who you are. I'm in. And if I perish, you're still on the throne. I'm not God. I'm not going to pretend to be you. But I will take that next step. In verse 17, Mordecai then went away and did everything as Esther had ordered him. Friends, we will fast. We will pray. We will take our petition to the, the court of the king of kings because nothing is better. He is no fool to give up that which he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. Times of difficulty. In times of despair as we look at our world, we will pray how we ought to lament with bold words as we read this morning. And with acts of faith as we walk daily, step by step, taking that very next step in total submission to the kingdom of Christ, no matter the cost, personal, corporate, family. And may we say, if I perish, if we perish, we perish. May that be the rallying cry that we sing that we say how we live. Why? Because we know the one true king and his purpose will prevail. So the tension is mounting here in Esther. It's, it's mounting. We're getting closer to the breaking point. But today we have finally seen a glimmer of hope. A glimmer of hope. But she, the people, need to press on. And we have yet to see how God is going to act. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we have read the story of how these tensions mount. How Esther has to grapple and Mordecai has to grapple with the, the mess they have found themselves in. How Esther didn't even ask for this mess, yet she still has to deal with it. And Lord, we've seen the submission, the submission to King Jesus, that even though it was not on my own, even though I'm not here because of something I did, even though I'm not in this mess because of my own doing, Lord, I am going to take that next step, no matter the cost, for the sake of the one who came. Oh, Lord, that you will help us be a kingdom of people, be a kingdom of priests, with that kind of mindset. If we perish, you are still God. That we will take that next step in obedience. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.